Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improved jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, Alarmy. Before we get started, we wanted to make sure you heard the big news. The Alarmist has joined Patreon. Patreon subscribers will get access to our content ad-free, as well as our aftermath post-interview discussion and final verdict. We'll also be putting out additional bonus episodes and other fun stuff. Here's a preview of Guest Alarmist, where I step aside and let a guest walk us through a personal tragedy, and together the Alarmist crew figures out who's to blame. This month, Adam Lustig discusses his 2003 telegram disaster. Sandy ran this telegram company, and another part of the business was uh, children's costumed characters for birthday parties, many of which I did. 
And uh, because, like Clayton said, Sandy didn't have the rights from Disney to, like, license, to, like, advertise or promote the character as actual Mickey Mouse, as actual Minnie Mouse, she had to have alt names for all Mm. of the children characters (laughs) that would clear (laughs) copyrights. So it was Mr. Mouse. It was Ms. Mouse. Elmo was just the letter L dash Mo. SpongeBob, this is the best one, was SpongeRob. So things like... (laughs) So, and you work on for and this on. company, which and is on and on SpongeBob's I can't, name. I can't. Really, still SpongeRobert. Still SpongeRobert. <laughs> but it's just a so, different yes. version. And did exactly. it look Robert. exactly like SpongeBob? That's right. Bob? Did yeah. Rob look? It was Rob, a twin of Bob, <laughs> or exactly. was he slight? Was he fraternal? Yeah. Was it an identical twin? Was he a fraternal twin? No, it was identical Good. twin. I'm sure it would right? seem that. <laughs> Seemed seemed identical. (laughs) Go to patreon.com slash the alarmist and subscribe today. Now on to our episode. Each week we decide who's to blame for a historical tragedy. And each week you tell us if we got it right. My name is Rebecca Delgado Smith and this is The Aftermath. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning into this episode of The Aftermath. Today, we're speaking with guest expert, Professor Eduardo Pagan. Dr. Pagan is a professor of history at Arizona State University and the author of Murder at the Sleepy Lagoon, Zoot Suits, Race and Riot in Wartime L.A. He's also a former co-host of History Detectives on PBS. Let's hear what he has to say about the Zoot Suit Riots. Hi, Eduardo. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, you're very welcome. It's my pleasure. So can you start off by setting the stage for us? What was Los Angeles like leading up to the 1940s? Who was living here? What was the economy like? Oh, those are all very good questions. I should tell you that it took me a couple of chapters to kind of lay that out. I'll try to do it in a few. <laughs> you don't think you can do it in like uh, a minute or so? <laughs> you know, I, from my perspective, I, I characterize Los Angeles in the early 20th century as probably one of the most rapidly evolving metropolises in the United States. Now, I'm sure there are other places that would probably argue with that. But the reason why I say that is that if you think for a moment, um, from the revolution that's occurring in Mexico, starting in 1910 and going up to about 1921, 1923, you've got you've got hundreds of thousands of refugees coming over the border, many of them relocating Los Angeles. Uh, from the south, you have what's known as the Great Migration of African Americans coming out to California as well. Uh, and then after the Dust Bowl and during the, the Great Depression, you have what's known as the Oki migration. So in other, in other words, a lot of working class whites, farmers, agricultural people also coming out to Southern California. And so uh, you've got a city uh, of, of Los Angeles that goes from this sleepy coastal village to becoming a metropolis of about 250,000 uh, seemingly overnight. I mean, it took a few decades but it's it's rapidly growing and expanding. It is diverse, um, and so this is this is a place that's experiencing a lot of transition up leading up into World War II. And what was it like for particularly Mexican Americans in LA at this time? What what neighborhoods did they live in? What would they like? And and what kind of work did they do? Yeah, so no, that's a great question. And the other thing that I would add to this in terms of just kind of painting the picture is that, is that your question prompted me to 
to remember that this is also the age of segregation, both legal segregation, in other words, what's actually written in the laws, but also the extra legal part. So it may not be written in the laws, for example, that, that one would defer to whiteness in, in, in public settings, but it was certainly a, a, a public expectation, right? So i give you a quick example. So you, you may be familiar with Emmett Till, for example. Uh, he tragically was was not in, in uh, his his uh, death was not in California, but it's an example of where this is a young African American coming from uh, from up north um, down in the south, and and he allegedly speaks to a white woman in a way that was considered in, inappropriate for the time. Right now, he didn't say anything offensive from our modern perspective, but for the time, he did say something that was interpreted as as being inappropriate allegedly. And for that, he it cost him his life, right? And so that's an example of how the there were extra legal exp, uh, expectations placed on people who were uh, racialized. Um, that again, it was not part of the laws, but certainly part of the expectations. And so, so to your question about what was it like for for uh, refugees from Mexico? So now you know you're dealing with a population that is not primarily English speaking, and so there are all of those challenges coming into a new setting. Um, that comes um, for refugees coming from the revolution. Many of them worked in uh, in blue collar industries. Um, so as the war got underway and the American economy transitioned from where it was before to producing for the war, and it's everything you can imagine from clothing to bullets to armaments to everything, right? All of the industries transitioned. You needed people to actually work in those those uh, those factories and in those conditions. So many, many people uh, moved into those ranks of, of really uh, forwarding the engine of war, if I can put it that way. Um, but also a lot of for a lot of uh, Mexican-Americans, uh, they worked in the agricultural industries. Um, Southern California was still very agricultural. Uh, in fact, where uh, where part of this this larger story takes place, it is now very industrial. But if you went back in the 1940s, it was a rural area where corn was grown and all kinds of things like that. So, uh, so there are a lot of uh, people who moved into the agricultural sectors, either packing fruits and vegetables, or picking them, or living on ranches and doing doing uh, the necessary things on on those environments. So. Uh, hopefully that that is not too vague of an answer. To you. No, it's uh, it's great. Uh, I, I'm curious about the if you could talk to us about the uh, Bracero initiative. Yeah. What was its goal and uh, how was it received or perceived in L.A.? So the Bracero initiative was an initiative um, recognizing that in an, a full on mobilization for war where every able bodied person who could essentially do this and stand on their feet were mobilized to go out to fight, um, that that it created an enormous vacuum in in work and labor. You needed people to continue the, the machinery going forward, the economic machinery, if you will. So the Bracero program was recognizing that uh, we needed, we desperately needed workers. Um, and it was a program as a formal agreement between the United States and the Republic of Mexico that they would ship workers up into um, the southwestern states from Texas all the way out to California. And in doing that, there was the United States guaranteed certain protections. 
So work conditions, for example, out in the fields, they were guaranteed places to wash up. They were guaranteed sanitation. Um, they were guaranteed minimal wage. Uh, they were guaranteed places where they could stay so they didn't have to sleep out in the fields, right? So, you know, this was this work agreement that ex that lasted from the early 1940s all the way up until the early 1950s. And again, it was a recognition that the United States needed workers and that Mexico would supply those workers. And then transportation was a part of this. But once their contract was done, they would go back home. And so that's really what that program was. It was a recognition that we need laborers, but it was also recognition that laborers needed to be treated fairly and they needed to be um, paid a, a decent wage and given decent working conditions as well. Um, all of that went away in the early 1950s when growers in Texas in particular chafed at the federal government essentially establishing a minimum wage. They wanted to be able to pay uh, their workers uh, from Mexico whatever they wanted to pay and so it was largely growers in Texas who advocated to end the, the Bracetto program, and they were successful in doing that. But it was, it was again, it was because um, the, the, the owners of farms and, and of other industries that benefited from the Bracetto program, they, they, they didn't want to have to meet those minimal qualifications. Wow. Um, <laughs> can you tell us, explain to us what a zoot suit is? Oh, a zoot suit, yes. Okay, so you're probably too young to remember this. But I'll start with this. So in the 1980s, um, Hugo Boss, designer, um, had a suit in the night. So if you remember back to the fashion in the 1980s, if you've seen photographs of them, this is back when big shoulders were all the rage for both men and women, right? And so there was a Hugo Boss look to men's suit where the shoulders were padded and they were larger, but it was to produce really this kind of classic male silhouette, right? So broad at the shoulders, tight at the waist, and even the, past, uh, the, the pants for the Hugo Boss suits, they were, um, there was a lot of material uh, to allow for pleats. So the thighs flowed and draped in a particular way, but the ankle also came down to, to kind of a, a tighter fit. So again, if, if you're familiar with 1980s fashions, and you'll see them in some of the movies of the period, even going up into the early 1990s, that gives an idea of what the zoot suit looked like. It was, it was a suit that came out of jazz fashion and it was designed to emphasize kind of the male silhouette so broad shoulders tight at the waist the skirt of the jacket came down uh, below mid thigh often it came down to just above the knee so there was this again if you're familiar with men's formal wear there's there's a there's um you only see this in the in the UK primarily, but sometimes you'll see this in certain parts of the United States. There's a there's a formal day wear where the the jacket that the men still wear to this day comes down almost like an overcoat, right? But, yes. but to about to the knees, again formed to to the upper male body. So you have this classic V shape, and then the pants of the zoot suit uh, again very broad pleats. So there's a lot of material around the thigh. But then it came down very tight around the ankle. So it kind of created this, this flowing drape kind of appearance. And it was all part of jazz fashion. And why was it considered so scandalous? <laughs> oh, that's a great question. Why was it so uh, scandalous? So in order to understand that, you have to kind of, we, we need to go back to the 1930s and 1940s. And we'll start with jazz very quickly. 
So jazz has been characterized as the perhaps the most uniquely American art form ever produced. And, and I agree with that. Uh, jazz originates out of the Mississippi, Mississippi Delta in the uh, houses of prostitution. And essentially what happened was, was that for male customers, as they waited in, in these, these houses of ill repute, um, many of these houses hired uh, artists, African-American artists often to perform, to play. And it was in the process of, 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 of this, of entertaining Johns, that jazz first started to take root. So we're talking about Dixieland jazz. Again, if you're familiar with the kind of 1920s jazz, it's the kind of jazz that you might hear played in Disneyland these days. But back in the day, um, <laughs> jazz was considered to be very underground, uh, disreputable because of where it came from, right? Now, jazz has gone through different phases. So in the 1920s, it was characterized by Dixieland jazz. Going to the 1930s, jazz changes to become much more of a big band sound. And so if you're familiar with swing jazz, that's really what characterizes the state of jazz in the 1930s and 1940s, right? This is all an answer to your question about why was the suit suit disreputable? So I'm getting there, okay? So, but you, what I'm trying to paint for you this picture is, is that this is an underground musical art form. And it is not the kind of music that polite people would listen to because of where it came from. And because it was largely popular among African-Americans, among Jews who were racialized during this period, among Mexican-Americans, again, who were racialized by this period, it was known as underground music. Uh, as a matter of fact, if we could go back in time and we'll, we'll pick 1942, for example, and you could tune into the radio. And this is this is your main format of, of entertainment, by the way, is the radio, right? Um, and you listen to the hit parade, you would never hear jazz. Jazz was like was was like these pirate stations who were playing what was called race music during the period, right? In the 1940s. This is, just to give an idea of how underground this, this was. But it was wildly popular among the young people. And it's largely because if, if we could play some clips, jazz always had a beat to it. Even the way that the instruments were played, whether it was the horn or the guitar or even the piano, it was syncopated in such a way that, that you would move to it. I mean, it had a beat, it, it moved the body. And this was very appealing to young people. Um, and it was very different than what you were hearing on the hit parades. If the hit parades, again, 1942, I think the number one song was how much is that doggy in the window? If you're familiar with that one, right? <laughs> yeah. um, you know, it was these these very melodic kinds of songs that you could dance the waltz to, but the but this this race music, like in the mood, and some of these other songs, they were very different. They 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 wanted they they made you want to get up and dance. Now, all of this is to say so that you understand that that music is racialized. And what's being played on the radio is racialized as, as well. And this, this jazz music is considered to be very improper, very scandalous. It's street music. It's underground music. Well, again, put yourself into the context of the 1940s. When you see um, jazz fans dressed up in jazz fashion, which was very much, it was visually in your face. You couldn't not see somebody wearing a zoot suit in public. Um, there was a lot of public reaction to the zoot suit, kind of in a way, again, you're probably too young to remember this, but I remember 
back when hip hop first started to hit the mainstream and it was, you know, the emphasis on the, you know, the baggy clothing and, and the chains, the, all the bling, there was a public reaction to just to the look that was considered to be an affront to everything was considered normal and proper and decent, right? You had that same reaction in the 1980s to hip hop. You had the same reaction in the 1950s to rock and roll. You had that mm. same reaction in the 1930s and 1940s to jazz. It was an affront to everything that Americans considered to be proper and decent. And the fact, I'll add this one other thing as well. The fact that jazz was popular among white working class kids, among African-American kids, among immigrant kids, among Latino kids as well. The fact that it was it was a, an art form, uh, even a way of life that brought people together in an age of segregation, when the norm was that you everyone needed to stay in their corners, this was considered to be by some people to be not only scandalous, but even illegal, right? So mm. this is this is part of this reaction to jazz that the zoot suit itself was a visible symbol of people who were choosing a different way of expressing themselves. Wow. Uh, it was not socially appropriate. It was undermining of the values of segregation and racial privilege. And this is this is my thesis, one of the reasons why the zoot suit was considered to be so, so over the top, so inappropriate that it inspired violence. But not by, oh, wow. not by the people who wore it, but by people who saw it and wanted to rip it off kids and put them in their place, right? You're you're undermining the norms of, of American society, the way that everything works. You know, this is a symbol of that. So that's a long answer to your 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 short question. Well, yes, no, it symbolized a a uniting uh piece of fashion yes. it was a it was a fashion <laughs> how dare they yes exactly it was a fashion that suggested a different an alternative yes. to american life that a lot of people at that period were not ready to embrace and it was an alternative that was basically it, it didn't matter what your color was what mattered was was the soul has always been like what what's in your heart what's in your soul i'm sorry jazz sorry i said soul but jazz has always been about what's in your soul. What can you what can you show yeah. through your your dance moves or the way that you blow your horn or something like that? It's not about your color. And so, you know, again, and if you went into jazz clubs, they were they were integrated groups, jazz uh, bands up on the stage. There were people dancing on the floors that were of different races because it didn't matter. What mattered was what can you show that you have in your soul. And in a time when segregation is enforced, this is, yeah, this is, I mean, this is undermining everything. Right. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. 
There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Now, I, I want to talk about the murder at yeah. the Sleepy Lagoon. Yeah. And how... How does this go down on uh, August 2nd, 1942, now that we understand the context right, of the time? Right. All right. So let me, again, let me try and set this up in a way that's 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 quick. So uh, in what was then rural Los Angeles, it is now where Bell is in Los Angeles, which is a suburb. If you actually go out to the to the site where this all went down, it's, it's an industrial park, right? Um, but back in the 1940s, this was very agricultural, very rural. And there was a ranch. It's a very large ranch that existed there known as the Williams Ranch. And there were a number of, of families that lived on the ranch and because they, they worked on the ranch. And there were, I don't remember how many acres, but there are hundreds of acres on this ranch. Um, so there are several families that lived together on the ranch in these little clusters. So on the night of, of 2 August 1942, there was one of the families was celebrating the birthday of one of their daughters. It was, not, it was pretty unremarkable, right? And they were selling it, celebrating this birthday in kind of classic Mexican way. So there was lots of food out. Uh, there was music being played. People danced. It was just this great time that was going on. A lot of the families in the area were invited. And so it was just this wonderful little rural gathering of working people celebrating this this young woman's birthday. Um, What happened about 10 or 11 o'clock at night, the party was crashed by outsiders. These were largely Russian immigrant kids from Downey, which is, again, it's uh, part of the L.A. area now. They came in to crash. They wanted beer, free beer. And the party goers throw, threw them out, right? They weren't invited. So <laughs> kids from Downey left. Well, about an hour and a half later, there was another group that came to the party. And um, the people at the party thought that the Downey kids had returned. And so they were ready to defend themselves. And and this second group that came to the party, um, it, it broke out into a fight. Um, and it was fairly brief. Uh, people, they were throwing fists and beer bottles and things like that. And eventually the second group, and they were largely kids from East LA that had come out, they left very quickly. Well, it was in the process of, again, the people at the party, at the, at the ranch, as they were trying to kind of pick themselves up and find out if anybody's hurt, 
that you discovered the body of, of a young man by the name of Jose Diaz, who was mortally wounded. And he was unconscious. He had been beaten. Uh, he had been stabbed a couple of times. And uh, they called the uh, the an ambulance. He was taken to L.A. General Hospital. He never recovered consciousness and he passed away. And so when he passed away, uh, this this happened to occur over a weekend of a lot of violence in Southern California, Los Angeles in particular. And the governor of California, um, Governor Olson at the time, sent a memo, uh, particularly to the law enforcement in Los Angeles County. So this included the sheriff's department, but also the LAPD. And he wanted uh, the, the authorities to put their full weight into cracking down on what was known as juvenile delinquency of the period. And there was this, there was this widespread fear in, in uh, California in particular that um, with, with uh, all of the people mobilized, all of the able-bodied men mobilized, even including police, uh, the police force and the sheriff department, they were down to a skeleton crew level. There was this fear that when you've got dad off fighting the war and mom's in the factory working, you've got a lot of young people who are unsupervised. And so there's a lot of discussion in this period about juvenile delinquency and a lot of fear that juvenile delinquency was getting out of hand and it was undermining the war effort. So this memo from the governor is basically saying, we need you to restore order. And so the sheriff's department and also the, the Los Angeles police department, they threw their full weight into finding out who was responsible for the murder of this young man, the death of this young man. And as a result of this widespread dragnet that was conducted, they pulled in hundreds of kids all throughout LA County. And in some cases, even beat them up until they got confessions. And this was before the days of the Miranda rights, right? And so if you were if you were pulled in by the police, they often used force against you if they thought you were lying. Eventually they focused in on uh, a number of young people that lived in this neighborhood of Los Angeles known as the 38th Street Kids. Now they were characterized in the press as a gang but I am very careful not to use that term because today, when you use the gang, the term gang, you think of MS-13, for example, you think of the Crips and the Bloods. Uh, it's a very um, loaded and specific term, the way that we use it today. If you went back in the 1940s, these young people, they were nothing like that. They were not anything close to MS-13. Um, they were just a bunch of young people that lived in the same area and they hung out with each other and they dated one another. They they just happen to be living in the same area. So I, I, I'm very careful not, not to characterize them as a gang. But nonetheless, they are in the press, right, as a gang. Well, they were um, they were uh, brought up on trial. Um, and the trial went from October 1942 up until January of 1943. And despite the fact that the prosecutor's office could never produce a murder weapon, could never produce an eyewitness that said, yes, I saw those young people murdering Jose Diaz. Nothing. There was no confession. So you have you have no no murder weapon, no no direct evidence that these young people were, in fact, responsible for his death. Um, you could prove no motive as well. But despite that, the jury convicted uh, a number of these young people who were all tried together, by the way. I think there were 21 or 22 people all tried together in a courtroom. Uh, there were a number of them, over a dozen that were convicted. Some of them sent to San Quentin for their role uh, in, in the supposed murder of Jose Diaz. Um, 
And I should add that there were a number of young women that were that were also in this group that had crashed the party, the second group. They were not brought up on murder charges, but they were nonetheless, many of them were sent to girls camps, uh, which were pretty rough. Um, at least they didn't get sent to San Quentin, but they were still run through the penal system and still had to pay for something they were not responsible for. So um, that's how this, so all of this happens preceding the Zoot Suit riot. So as I mentioned before, the, yes. the jury, uh, the, the trial ends by January of 1943. The Zoot Suit riot breaks out in June of 1943. And so there's no direct connection in the way that again, if you think about the Simi Valley verdict of 1992, where there was the Rodney King trial, there was the verdict, and then there was public reaction, right? The, the riots in Los Angeles. It was not that kind of direct connection. The connection was this larger public fear that the young people in Los Angeles were out of control, that they were violent, that they were criminal. That's how it all fits together, right? So one didn't lead to another, but they were all part of that larger national or growing fear, at least regional fear, that young people during the, the war period were, were out of control because they lacked parental supervision. So that's the connection between the murder trial and then the riot. And the and the trial itself, because we read uh, uh, that there were, uh, you know, s the, some uh, things that the judge had said right. and and done during the trial that w that really were very um, hurtful yeah. to what the press then eventually leaked yeah. out. Yeah, yeah, and so the the trial judge, he's a very interesting character. Believe it or not, he was before he became a judge, he was a legal scholar, so he was highly respected in the legal world. When he became a judge, he was known as a prosecutor's judge. So he was not the guy that you wanted to hear your case because chances were he was gonna side with the prosecution, not the defense, right? Um, and he was also known for handing out stiff sentences as well. So during this particular trial, as I mentioned before, there were 21, 22 young people that were all tried together in the same courtroom. They had a defense team that, and I'm using the, the term team very broadly. They had several attorneys representing different cohorts of these young people. They never really cohered as, as a defense team. So again, think about like the OJ trial, for example, he had a team. He had a team of, of attorneys that worked together and, you know, they they presented a case that eventually uh, led to that outcome. This group of attorneys, they were each representing their separate slice of that larger group. So they never cohered. Uh, some of them, this was the first case they'd ever tried in a trial. Um, this was just, <laughs> it was like the worst case scenario if your life is on the line for murder of, of the of the people you want defending themselves. And so the judge would often kind of school these attorneys during the process. No, that's not an appropriate question. You need to phrase it this way. At the same time, again, you remember this trial is going from October until January, right? At the same time, the young people, they're, they're all made to sit at one part of the courtroom they knew they weren't guilty. They had no idea who this young person was. They they had talked among themselves, all right, who did it? They weren't responsible. And so they were supremely confident that they would be let off because they were there was no evidence, as I said before, that could tie them. So, you know, in the months of tedious courtroom proceedings, 
And if you've ever sat through a courtroom proceeding, you know what I'm saying? It's nothing like Perry Mason or what the movies made it out to be <laughs> where there's this drama, right? No, it's very tedious stuff. You know, they would start to kind of like poke each other and and throw spit wads at each other and stuff like that. I mean, they, these are young, these are teenagers, right? Now, the jury, on the other hand, they were sitting on the opposite side of the, the courtroom. They're watching these kids during the whole time, just being flippant about the proceedings. And that prejudiced the jury just watching these kids, right? They're not respectful of the proceedings. They're, you know, they're, and they, again, they were trying to relieve the boredom. And sometimes they would crack jokes and they'd be, you know, giggling and things like that. And it just didn't play out well for them. So you've got the jury that's watching them during these three months of proceedings, mm -hmm. you know, going like these kids are hoodlums, you know, they're guilty of something, right? And then you've got the, the trial judge as well, who's, who's lecturing the defense about, you know, you really need to brush up on your game. This is not how you do things. You need to do this. The jury's taking this all in, right? And so despite, as I said before, despite the fact that there was never a motive proven, they didn't even, they could, the, the prosecution couldn't even place the, the, the young people of 38th Street who were on trial, couldn't even place them at the scene of the crime when this alleged murder took place. They nonetheless convicted them, uh, found them guilty. Um, so, yeah, I mean, all of it just worked badly against these young people. And, you know, I my position is is really that the justice now, system. I, I want to fast them. forward to 1943. It's the summer and we suddenly yep. have a group of servicemen who are stationed yep. outside of L.A. Yep. and, and come driving into the city looking for zoot yep. suitors and, and looking for trouble. Yep. Can you walk us through yep. how this suddenly happened? Right, right. So uh, that's a great question. But so how did, why did the, the riot break out? So I'll put it in context. In 1942 and 1943, there were riots breaking out across the country. And often there were race riots. Um, so just so you understand, Los Angeles wasn't unique in that regard. It was simply one city where there was mass social violence going on. This was a period of enormous social tension. Part of what underwrote that widespread tension was that, again, in the age of segregation, there were a lot of workplaces that were segregated, a lot of workshop floors that were segregated, right? Um, we know this in the case of Rosa Parks, for example, the civil rights, that you know even transportation was segregated, movie theaters were segregated. The reason why this becomes a part of a factor in, in how the, the riot broke out is that because, again, this massive mobilization and all able-bodied men are now being shipped off to war, there is, a, as I said before, this labor vacuum. Well, what do you do? How do you feel? This is, this is why women started to move into the workforce in unprecedented ways and in unprecedented numbers, but also racial minorities who had been previously excluded from various shops and various industries as well. So this is a claimant, 1942, 1943, where the whole structure that had characterized American society had been flipped upside down. So women are now in the workforce. Racial minorities are now in the workforce. The, the, the able-bodied white men, and again, the army's segregated as well. They're off fighting, many of them dying as well. People don't respond well when there's rapid social change. They just don't. Um, and that might give you some clue about why is, we're facing some of the tensions that we face right now. Um, but going back to the riot now, 
for two years before the riot broke out. So starting from late 1940, 1941, I found um, 80 police reports by civilians about there about the harassment that was taking place in that corridor between a very particular uh, army reserve uh, location. It's now where Dodger Stadium stands. In fact, that building is still there, I should add as well. But again, segregated military. And so you've got a, a training facility in the Chavez Ravine area where Dodger Stadium is right now. So they're all white. And in order for them to get downtown, when they go on leave, they have to pass through these racialized neighborhoods, segregated neighborhoods. Now, in those neighborhoods, they were not African-American. They were largely immigrant youth, but these are racialized immigrants. These are, these are the days when Italians and Greeks and Jews were all racialized in ways very similar to Latinos and African-Americans. So um, even though they weren't African-Americans in those neighborhoods between downtown and this, this training facility, they nonetheless received harassment uh, as they went into town. And from the perspective of the kids who were living there, they were just trying to defend their turf, right? These, these military men would come swaggering down to the neighborhoods, propositioning wives and sisters and mothers. And these young men would go, you, you can't speak that way to my mother, right? And, and so there were reports for two years leading up to the riot where these conference state confrontations started out to be verbal. And then from verbal, they became physical, right? In other words, things were escalating where the young people were, again, were trying to defend their families, the women and their families, their turf, military men coming through, being very disrespectful. And then the verbal conference or the physical confrontations then start breaking out into small, small fights. All of this leads up to early June of 1943, when there was a, a, a larger fight that took place between these civilian youth in the neighborhoods between the downtown area and the Naval Reserve Armory, um, where finally uh, the, the military personnel said, that's it. We are we are going to put them in their place. And so they they broke out military. Again, the military uh, personnel uh, in, in the northern Los Angeles area, they broke out. And for the first night of the riot, they just picked up whatever they could. Stuff on the, you know, palms, palm tree branches, it, it's uh, there's there's some photographs they look like they they pulled off um slats from uh from uh from fences and things like that and they wanted to put these young people back in their place as again just think in terms of the age of segregation right. where you have racialized young people who are harassing white military men and the response in that day was violence right you put them back in their place because they are now stepping outside the bounds of, of racialized privilege and power. Um, so that was the first night of riot was, was basically the, the military personnel in this armory going to, sweeping through those neighborhoods that, that had been a source of harassment for them and, and beating up anyone they could find. Now in the subsequent nights though, that's when things get kind of weird. As word spreads through the military grapevine that we are, we are, exerting our power and influence now we're we're striking back um word spreads and now you have military personnel stationed down in san diego and other places who suddenly are, are getting on buses in fact i had one report that that there were military personnel from las vegas if you could imagine that jumping on a bus so they could crack some skulls down in los angeles 
people just began pouring into Los Angeles, military personnel, but also civilians. Again, there were a lot of civilians who were seeing what was going on and they wanted to put people back in their places. So yes, military personnel was involved, but it wasn't strictly military men against civilians. It was a very complicated mix. And as the subsequent nights of rioting took place, uh, these groups then of rioters, military men and civilians, organized and then split up. And this is where things become very overtly racial. One group goes down into South Central, which is largely African-American. Another group goes into East LA, which is largely Latino, uh, Mexican and Mexican-American as well. Um, and they, they look for anyone, not just zoot suitors, but anyone who is talking back, uh, who's being disrespectful, and they would beat them up. But in the process, uh, this also came out during the riot, this is, and this is what makes this particular right very, very weird. So I'll tell you that when it was all over, there was no murder and there was no um, um, uh, case of, of violent assault that ever was reported after this rioting. And this is unlike other riots in the United States, in Detroit and, and Texas and Newark as well, where people were killed as a result of this rioting. I found nothing. There was no rape. There was no murder. There was no violent assault that was ever reported as a result of this, this, uh, these series of fights, street fights. What happened was, was that if any young person was caught wearing a zoot suit, they were beaten up, the clothing was stripped off of them, and either the the, the suit was was ripped up into shreds, or the suit was burned on the street. That was the whole focus of this social energy uh, was really to destroy the clothing. And back to your question about, you know, what was unique about the zoot suit is it is that I believe that the, the clothing was a symbol of how rapidly America was changing. And it was a symbol that the next generation wasn't buying into the norms of segregation that the previous generations had upheld. They wanted a different world. Wow. And so that's why the symbol then became, or the suit became the symbol that, that, that people attacked and destroyed. It was a way of putting all of these jazz fans back in their places, go back to your racialized corners, uh, you know, go back to your, your, your race music. We don't want to hear it. Uh, we don't want to see the way you dance. We don't want any of this stuff. So that's really what the riot was about. So... Unfortunately, we're running out of time, but I, I, I have to ask you this question, um, and sure. we'd like to ask all of our guest experts this question. At sure. the end of the day, if you had to pick a person or thing, it could be a concept, that you think is to blame for the Zoot Suit riots, who or what would that be? It was a fear of change. It was a fear of change, really. What's interesting to me is that these young people who embraced music, street culture, if you will, their vision of the future is eventually what we enjoy now. Segregation is a thing of the past. Um, music is not racialized. Um, now, I'm not saying that we live in a perfect society, but we don't live in the way that things were in the 1940s. And so they were the future and the riot by trying to destroy the, the physical symbol of their, uh, of their popular culture was trying to restore what was being violated. 
And so I think it was the fear of change. That's really what this was all about. And in fact, I would argue that much of what we're seeing now revolves around the fear of change. Eduardo, it's been great talking to you. Thank you so much for helping us understand this very unique piece of our history. You're very welcome. If you'd like to hear our post-interview discussion and final verdict, head over to Patreon and subscribe. Your support is greatly appreciated. Check out our show notes for a link or head over to patreon.com slash the alarmist. And stay tuned because next week we'll be discussing the rise and fall of HQ Trivia. The Alarmist. Powered by ACAST. 